Hi everyone, and welcome back! My name is Sejal Parikh, and I'm your host today. You're listening to Precision Bites, talking with patients about weight management, a podcast of simulated clinical encounters dealing with motivational interviewing and weight management in a variety of social contexts. Today, the provider will see Mrs. Martinez, a 45-year-old obese Puerto Rican female with borderline high blood pressure. She lives with her husband, her two kids, her brother and her sister-in-law, and her mother. Mrs. Martinez's mother is the primary caregiver for the kids and the primary food preparer in the household. The provider has called Mrs. Martinez back after her annual appointment to discuss the lab results, which showed an HbA1c in the pre-diabetic range. Before we start, we want to clarify a point. While we will attempt to offer suggestions and pointers for culturally competent care, this podcast episode is not an exhaustive resource. Despite our best attempts, I'm sure there are points we've missed and areas where we could have been more sensitive. Please use this podcast as an adjunct resource, supplementing other, more comprehensive resources and your personal experience. Okay, so that being said, here are the things we want you to take away from this episode. One, how to assess the medical family history, taking into account ethnicity. Two, how to introduce changes to diet without placing blame or offending family members. And three, how to offer culturally aware and appropriate food substitution ideas. Hope you enjoy. Part one, chronic disease and risk factors. Come in. Hi, Mrs. Martinez. How are you doing? Hi, Doc. I'm okay. How are you? Good, good. So, thank you for coming in today. I called you back because I wanted to talk about your lab results. (laughs) Okay, yeah. I got worried when you didn't tell me the results over the phone like you usually do. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cause any stress. I just wanted to talk to you in person, that's all. Okay, so what is it? Last time during your annual exam, your blood pressure was borderline high. Uh, It wasn't high enough to make us want to start medicine right now, but I made a note of it. Then we got your annual blood tests. One of the blood tests I ordered was this long-term measure of blood sugar. That marker of blood sugar shows that you are in the pre-diabetic range. What? I have diabetes? No, no, Mrs. Martinez. You do not have diabetes at this time, but this blood test shows that you are close. Uh, There are plenty of things that we can do to make sure that you don't get to that point. I don't know what to say. I guess it makes sense with my family history. My brother is diabetic, but he's not on insulin or anything. My mom is diabetic, but she doesn't take her insulin, so I guess it makes sense. It sounds like you have a strong family history of diabetes. Yeah, yeah, I do. Sorry, um, so my mother has diabetes and my brother has diabetes. One uncle on my mom's side has diabetes too, And both my dad's sisters have diabetes. Okay, I see. Uh, Does anyone in your family have high blood pressure? Well, I know my brother has high blood pressure too, and I think my dad had high blood pressure, but my mom doesn't know. I don't know about my extended family, though. I only know about the diabetes because they always say how it stops them from eating what they want. Okay. And anyone in the family with heart disease? Yeah, the doctor said my dad died of a big heart attack. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that, Mrs. Martinez. Uh, How old was he when he died? Uh, Well, I was 10, so I think he was close to 55. Pretty young. 
Yeah, that is young. I'm sorry again to hear that. Anyone else in your family have heart disease? I think my dad's sisters have some heart issues, but I'm really not sure about the specifics. Okay. And sorry, I've been meaning to ask you for the last couple visits. Uh, where is your family from? Puerto Rico. Why? Why does that matter? Well, there's some new research coming out on the specific risk factors that people from Puerto Rico have in comparison to other Latinos and Latinas. It's still preliminary, but I just wanted to ask. What? Is there something I should be worried about because I'm from Puerto Rico? No, nothing you should be worried about. One thing I've read is that people from Puerto Rico can have higher rates of high blood pressures and prediabetes. But all this means is that we have to be a little more careful in our monitoring and treatment. That's all. We'll come up with a plan today. Okay, so what's the plan? I, I don't know. I'm just worried. I know my brother has diabetes, but I guess, I guess I just thought that I was too young for that. Well, I want to remind you that you are pre-diabetic. We can reverse this. Um, you are not diabetic. You don't need insulin. Um, that's not where we are. We're going to make a plan today, okay? Okay. Okay, where do we start? Pearl 1, Chronic Disease and Risk Factors. Before we even get started, we thought it would be helpful to review some terminology. Very broadly speaking, the word Hispanic refers to people who speak Spanish, which includes most of Mexico, Central America, and South America, but excludes Portuguese-speaking Brazil, French-speaking Haiti, and other non-Spanish-speaking territories. Broadly speaking, Latino and Latina refers to people of Latin American descent, including Brazil and Haiti but excluding Spain, living currently in the United States. While there are real differences between the terms, unfortunately the medical literature often uses these terms interchangeably. For the purpose of this podcast, we will use the term Latino or Latina. So now that we've discussed terminology, let's discuss epidemiology. There are more than 56 million Latinos in the U.S., making up 17.6% of the population. They are one of the largest and fastest-growing ethnically diverse groups in the United States. One of the leading causes of mortality amongst Latinos is cardiovascular disease. Several large cross-sectional studies have been done to study cardiovascular risk factors in Latinos. Some of the landmark studies you should be aware of include the Hispanic Haines, or H. Haines, conducted in the early 1980s, the NHIS conducted in the late 1990s, the NHANES conducted in the late 2000s, and the most recent HCHS-SOL study conducted in the late 2010s. As the immigrant population and representation in the studies has changed over time, each of these landmark epidemiological studies yield slightly different results. We will summarize the results of these studies, focusing on risk factors for cardiovascular disease, including obesity, hypertension, dyslipidemia, and diabetes. So obesity. First, let's talk about what appropriate measures of obesity are in Latinos. It's important to be aware that certain ethnicities are predisposed to body types that can over- or under-inflate certain obesity measures. An analysis of multiple obesity measurements taken in the HCHS-SOL study found that most obesity measures, including BMI, waist circumference, and percent body fat, correlated well with each other across all subgroups of Latinos. Furthermore, these obesity measures correlated with unhealthy blood sugar, hypertension, and a poor lipid profile. 
so you should feel comfortable using BMI as a marker for obesity in your Latino patients. The NHANES study found that Latinos were more likely to be overweight and obese compared to their white but not black counterparts. Obesity prevalence amongst all Latino men was 36.5% and 42.6% amongst Latino women. The HCHS-SOL identified Latino subgroups and found that Puerto Rican men and women were much more likely to be overweight and obese compared to Mexican-Americans, Cubans, and Central and South Americans. Much research about childhood obesity in Latinos has been conducted. Cross-sectional studies find that Latino children are also among the most overweight and obese ethnic groups of children in the United States. 47% of Latino children are overweight and 31% are obese. This is in stark contrast to 35% of white children being overweight and 21% being obese. In contrast to the high obesity rate, hypertension is not as prevalent in Latino populations. The NHANES estimates that 30% of Mexican-American men and 29% of Mexican-American women have hypertension, compared to the 33% of non-Hispanic white men and 30% of non-Hispanic white women. Within Latinos, subgroups have had varying rates of hypertension. The HHANES, conducted in the late 80s, found that amongst Latinos, Mexican-Americans had the highest rate of hypertension. In contrast, the HCHS Dash SOL study conducted in the, in the early 2010s found that Dominican men and Puerto Rican women had the highest rates of hypertension. While the rates do keep changing, typically Latinos from South America have lower prevalence of hypertension than Mexican Americans, Puerto Ricans, or Dominicans. As we better understand the genes involved in lipid metabolism, studying dyslipidemia in ethnic groups has become more popular. The HCHS-SOL study estimates that 51% of Latino men and 39% of Latino women suffer from hypercholesterolemia. Abnormal lipid profiles are most common in Central American men and Puerto Rican women. High levels of hypercholesterolemia have also been noted in Mexican-American men. Unfortunately, Latino children also experience high rates of dyslipidemia. In fact, dyslipidemia and obesity were the most common components of the cardiovascular disease risk factor score. 23% of Latino teen boys and 20% of Latino teen girls have dyslipidemia, mostly because of low HDLC. Researchers postulate that these rates are unlikely explained by autosomal-dominant familial hypercholesterolemia, as that disease affects only 1 in 200 to 500. Finally, diabetes. The NHANES found that 11% of Latino men and 12% of Latino women had diabetes, as compared to the 7% of non-Hispanic men and 6.2% of non-Hispanic women. These rates are important to understand. According to the NHANES, diabetes rates are two times higher for Latinos as compared to non-Latinos. This is something to keep in mind when you consider diagnostic tests and therapeutic plans for your Latino patients. The HCHS-SOL study found even higher rates of diabetes in the study population, rates closer to 17%. This study found that the rates of diabetes were highest in Mexican-American men and Puerto Rican women. Okay, that was a lot of stats and numbers. Here are some quick takeaways. Latinos have higher rates of obesity than whites, about the same rates of hypertension, and much, much higher rates of diabetes than whites. Keep that in mind as you risk stratify your patients. Part 2. 
unfamiliar foods. Okay, so before we come up with a plan for the prediabetes, I wanted to get a sense of what you eat and drink. Um, let's start from the beginning. Well, what do you usually eat for breakfast, and what time is breakfast? Well, it really depends. I get up pretty early for work, so sometimes I'll try to do something filling, like Mallorca, or sometimes it's just milk and cereal. But I don't know, sometimes I also get food from work, you know? It's just a little bit of everything. Uh, sorry, what did you say? Uh, uh, Mallorca? Uh, is that how you say it? Uh, sorry, what is that? <laughs> Doctor, you haven't had Mallorca? Oh, no, you need to. It's delicious. Uh, uh, no, not yet. Um, but I'll put it on my list if you recommend it. Yes, definitely. You have to try it. Uh, so is it a bread item or more of a meat dish? It's like this it... sweet bread. It has like a, like a gooey top. Mm -hmm. I think it's something with egg. And then we sometimes put ham in it for breakfast. And you can put other things, but this is how we usually do it. And how, how big is one piece? Like the size of your hand or bigger? Uh, it's probably a little bigger, like this big. Okay. And when you have Mallorca, is that how you say it? Uh, when you have that, how much do you usually have? Well, one to two pieces. Okay. And anything to drink with breakfast? Um, maybe coffee from work, but nothing regular. The Mallorca is so sweet, I don't usually need juice or anything like that. Okay. When you have cereal for breakfast, um, do you usually have juice with that? Uh, yeah, I, I guess so. Yeah, when I have cereal, I have juice for the flavor. Mm -hmm. And when is the next time you eat? Uh, do you have a mid-morning snack or anything like that? No, I usually try to make it to lunch. Like I said, I might get coffee or something at work, but no more food until lunch. Um, what kind of coffee? Cream, sugar? Just a cup of black coffee with one sugar packet. Okay. And what do you usually eat for lunch? Well, I usually just take leftovers because that's what's ready in the morning. <laughs> and sometimes, if I have time, I'll make a sandwich, but usually just leftovers. And I guess sometimes I'll buy food from the restaurant near work, but yeah, I guess it does depend. When you take leftovers, what do you usually take? Well, it really depends. You know, my mom, she lives with us, and she's an amazing cook. She really is. And she does so much Puerto Rican food. It's really nice. So usually if I take leftovers, it's just that. So just so I get a better sense of what you mean, um, what was the last set of leftovers you had for lunch? Well, the last day I had leftovers, was that Friday? No, no, maybe it was Thursday. Yeah, yeah, it was probably Thursday. So the last day I had leftovers was on Thursday. And that day I took... I took mofongo and beans and rice. Uh, um, sorry, mofongo? What, what is that made of? Well, you can make it a lot of different ways. No, doctor, don't tell me you haven't had that either. Come on, you need to eat these foods. They're so much better than the bland food here. <laughs> okay, adding that to the list too. So tell me, what kind of food is mofongo? Well, like I said, it can be made a lot of different ways. My mom makes it with the long sweet bananas. You know those? Uh, plantains? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And then she adds pork and salt, some other seasoning. It's really, really good. Okay. Uh, can you show me how much you usually have? Uh, is it usually this much or this much, uh, this much? Uh, probably the second one, like this much. Okay. And, and then what do you usually drink with lunch? Soda. Just whatever they have in the vending machine at work. 
diet or regular? Regular. It just tastes so much better, you know? Closer to Mexican Coke. Uh, okay, and then when is the next time you eat? Uh, anything in the afternoon? Yeah, I have a snack or something around three or four. I just get tired, so it's nice to eat something to wake up. I usually get a bag of chips from the vending machine, and one bag is usually enough. Okay. Anything to drink uh, with the snack? Nope, just water. All right, and when is dinner? Uh, just when I get home. My mom usually has food ready, so that's really convenient. And we do more traditional food, maybe like three or four days. And the other days, we try to do pizza or more American foods for the kids. Uh, what do you mean for the kids? Do they like the traditional foods? Oh, they're okay with both. Well, I guess they're both kind of picky, so it's always a struggle. But my husband and I just want to make sure they're getting the American food at home so it helps them at school and everything. Sorry, what do you mean it helps them at school? Oh, I just mean that everything at home is so Puerto Rican that we want to make sure they're fitting in at school and everything. Oh, you mean through the foods that they're familiar with? Yeah, yeah, just so they fit in. Okay, okay. So for dinner, some days you do traditional foods and other days you do more American foods like pizza. Is that right? Yes. Okay, and do you usually drink anything with dinner? Well, the kids have juice because it's good for them to get their vitamins. The adults, so me, my husband, my brother, and my sister-in-law, we usually drink soda. And any dessert after dinner? Of course, it's part of our tradition. Well, I guess it's not dessert. We just think of it as just part of dinner. We usually have sweet rice or something else that's a nice palate cleanser from the meat. Okay. And uh, do you have any food between dinner and bedtime? No, not really. And any alcohol in the day, beer or wine with dinner? Well, my husband usually has a beer with his dinner, but I usually have soda. And how often would you say that you have beer or wine with dinner? Oh, I don't know. I mean, it's not that often or anything, probably once a week. Okay. And one more question. Um, on the average day, how many fruits would you estimate that you eat? Uh, oh, um, well... Uh, sometimes I'll have it for a snack or something like that. I don't know. It depends. Probably once a week. Okay. Uh, thank you for taking me through that, Mrs. Martinez. Pearl 2, Unfamiliar Foods. In this part of the encounter, the provider took a preliminary diet history. It can be intimidating to take a diet history of unfamiliar ethnic foods. The provider in this encounter was not familiar with prepared Puerto Rican foods such as Mallorca and Mofongo. If you find yourself in this situation, we recommend the following things. First, do not be afraid to admit that you're unfamiliar with the food. Your patient will appreciate your honesty. Second, try to understand the nutrition profile of the food. Does this food seem predominantly carbohydrate or protein-based? That's ultimately what you're trying to find out anyway. Use common terms like starchy or leafy to help the patient explain the food. You can ask the flavor profiles such as sweet or savory to get a better grasp as well. If the patient is telling you about prepared dishes that you are unfamiliar with, ask about the ingredients or preparation method to get a better picture of what the food is. Finally, ask about the portion that's eaten. This will help you recognize the health impact as well. So to summarize, when encountering unfamiliar foods, we recommend that you 1. Ask questions to help you understand the nutrient profile. Two, assess the flavor profile. Three, 
If the food is prepared, ask about ingredients and preparation method. And four, remember to ask about portion size. Now that we have a method for asking about unfamiliar foods, we want to review the diet history of the participants in the HCHS-SOL study. This cross-sectional study enrolled more than 12,000 Latinos in different studies in the U.S. The authors analyzed two 24-hour recall diet histories of participants and found that the average diet of participants was high in sugar-sweetened beverages, nuts, and legumes. The average diet of participants was low in whole grains and fruits. The diet of Latino subgroups also differed substantially, with Puerto Rican Americans having unhealthier diets and Mexican Americans having healthier diets on average. As obesity rates are significantly higher in Latino children than non-Latino children, research has also been conducted about the diet of Latino children. One review of diets of more than 7,000 Latino children in California revealed that Mexican-American children were significantly less likely to have two or more servings of vegetables as compared to their non-Mexican Latino counterparts. In contrast to the diet analysis of the adults in the HCHS-SOL study, this study of California and Mexican-American children did not find major differences in obesogenic patterns between subgroups of Latino kids. Finally, a word about Mexican Coke. Mexican Coke is a Coca-Cola soda sold primarily in Mexico. It's different than American Coca-Cola because Mexican Coke is sweetened with pure cane sugar. It contains 39 grams of sugar, and it's about 150 calories. While the calorie burden may not seem that high, 39 grams of sugar accounts for all of the recommended daily limit of added sugar for men and more than the daily limit of added sugar for women. Coca-Cola only started selling Mexican Coke in Texas in 2005, but since then, it's become wildly popular all over the states. According to a Coca-Cola spokeswoman, Mexican Coke sales experienced double-digit growth between 2012 and 2014. If your Latino patients drink soda, it could be worth asking if it's Mexican Coke. Part 3. Meal Traditions and Food Beliefs All right, Mrs. Martinez. I'm glad we went through your diet history. Uh, I feel like I have a good sense of what you eat on a day-to-day -day basis. I want to ask you a couple more questions about your diet and exercise, though. Okay. Uh, are there times where you feel like you're eating when you're not hungry? Um, any social situations in which you feel like you have to eat even when you don't need to? What? Sorry, I didn't catch that. Yeah, sorry, let me clarify. Are there situations like family or church gatherings where you feel like you are eating even when you're not hungry? Hmm. That's an interesting thought. Well, maybe. Yeah, we have a big family, so there are many birthdays, anniversaries, just lots to celebrate. And that's good, and we always have a lot of food at those things, and it's always good food, and it's rude not to try everything at, like, a potluck or something. So maybe. Yeah, maybe I am eating more than I need to at those things. You know, a lot of my patients have a similar issue. It's easy to eat in social situations and not even realize what's happening. What do you think about that? Do you feel hungry when you eat at these events? No. No, I guess I don't. Okay. Uh, do you think that there are strategies we can come up with um, to help you eat only when you're hungry at these social events? Yeah, that would be great, but sometimes it's just rude not to try foods that everyone spends so much time making, you know? I, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's a cultural thing. Oh, I understand. If everyone spends lots of time making food and they're excited to share, it can feel bad to turn them down. 
can I offer some suggestions of what to do in these circumstances? Sure, that sounds good. Uh, well, there are certain things you can do and certain things you can say. Um, in terms of things you can do, first is always portion size. Um, you can always grab the small appetizers or dessert plate uh, or even a bowl and only eat what fits in there. Okay, I think that could work sometimes, but I feel like people will notice if I suddenly stop eating. In that case, if people are asking, you can always change the topic. Um, or one thing that I like to do in those situations is if there are many things, um, like a drink or a bowl of soup or something, um, I stack all of that in my plate. Um, so then my plate looks really full, I don't stand out, but I actually end up eating less. Does that make sense? You put your cup of water in the plate? Yeah, um, just to take up space, as long as there's not a lot of gravy and stuff like that. <laughs> okay, I'll think about it. I don't know, I just feel like people will think I got sick or something. Because you'll be eating less? Yeah, my mom keeps saying, so-and-so stop eating, and then these bad things happen to so-and-so. You know what I mean? Mm, yeah, that makes sense. I think a lot of moms think that appetite is a sign of being healthy. I think that makes sense from their point of view. You know, one way to think about that that can help um, is that it's not that your appetite is low. Your appetite is the same. You're just choosing to eat more healthy foods. Uh, DC. Interesting. Uh, yeah. It's not that you're eating less food. You're just eating more healthy food. Interesting. Okay. 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 Think about it. Uh, another thing I wanted to ask you before we come up with a plan, are there things you are doing now to eat healthier? Actually, yes, there are. I'm glad you asked. I have been trying this new thing. My mom heard from her friend that her daughter lost a lot of weight drinking lemon juice or vinegar before meals. And it seems silly at first, but then I Googled it, and it looks like the acid does emulsify the fats, and that makes the fats less bad, I guess. I'm not really sure, but it seemed to make sense, so I've been doing that recently. And how do you think it's going? Well, I mean, my stomach feels a little sour, but if it works, then it'll be worth it. Have you seen a change in your weight? Um, well, I don't have a scale at home or anything. Uh, do your clothes fit differently? Uh, anyone at home mention that you look different? No. I'm on your side, Mrs. Martinez. I really want to come up with a plan that is going to work for you. I asked those questions because I wanted to see if this vinegar was working. You know, I've had a couple other patients mention something similar as well. Uh, can I tell you about that? Sure. Okay. So I've had a couple patients who have tried drinking vinegar before eating to break down the fats early. To be honest, I think that your stomach is so acidic that I don't know if a little bit of vinegar or lemon juice will make a difference. No, but Doc, the acid helps break down the fat. It just makes sense. Well, your stomach is usually more acidic than lemon juice or vinegar. So I don't know how much those will help add acidity. But look, maybe science hasn't figured it out yet. Um, maybe it's possible that the acid will help. It just seems that, based on your experience, this hasn't made a difference. I mean, maybe it hasn't been long enough? Maybe. Maybe. Um, but there are so many other things out there that have really worked for a lot of people. Um, the things that we've studied and know can work.
I just want to make sure you're getting the most for your effort, you know what I mean? Yeah, makes sense. Okay. Uh, so I just want to recap on what we've talked about so far to make sure we're thinking uh, the same thing. Sure. So uh, we talked about your daily diet, and then we talked about family gatherings with food and how to make it easier to eat less of them. Yep. And then we talked about the acid burning up the fat and how there might be other things that could also work for you. Yeah. So last question before we come up with some strategies. Um, how much uh, TV do you watch or how much screen time in general? Probably an hour a day, maybe two hours if I watch with the kids. Uh, where's the TV in the house? Well, we all have one in our bedrooms and a nice one outside. The kids have one in their bedrooms too? Yeah, it helps put them to sleep when I'm working late. Okay. Uh, would it be okay if I offered some options for changes we could make now? Pearl 3, Meal Traditions and Food Beliefs. In this part of the encounter, the provider asks Mrs. Martinez about eating during family get-togethers, discusses commonly held food beliefs in Latin cultures, and inquires about screen time. The reason that Mrs. Martinez may gain weight at family get-togethers and cultural celebrations is the same reason why other patients may gain weight around the holidays. In fact, this holiday weight gain may be more universal than previously thought. An interesting paper was recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine that analyzed data from wireless weight scales in three different industrialized countries. In collaboration with Withings, a wearable technology company, Researchers found that wireless scale users in the United States, Germany, and Japan, on average, gained a significant amount of weight during each country's respective holiday weeks. For U.S. users, that was during Thanksgiving and Christmas. For German users, that was during Christmas and Easter. Okay, so back to Mrs. Martinez. The reason she may have gained weight during cultural celebrations include special foods for cultural traditions, the spirit of celebration with food, and many opportunities to eat. When counseling patients who overeat during these celebrations and events, you can offer some standard advice. One piece of advice is to use a smaller plate or fill the plate in a way that it looks much fuller than it is. We know that satiety is in part psychological and has much to do with how we perceive what we are eating. The provider recommends that Mrs. Martinez make her plate look more full by including her water cup or other bowls in her plate. Another good piece of advice is to not arrive to these celebrations very hungry. It can be easier to overeat at these events if previously hungry. A study about people who successfully do not gain weight during the holidays showed that these people control their eating stimuli. The provider also discusses Mrs. Martinez's belief that drinking vinegar can help weight loss. One study analyzed the discussions that Latina women had in culturally adapted weight loss programs that focused on the immigrant experience. These women talked about the commonly held beliefs of food that assisted in weight loss. One belief was the one that Mrs. Martinez held. Drinking acidic liquids can help emulsify fats. Another belief was that overheating tortillas to a point of crispiness decreases their caloric value. When approaching these beliefs, it's incredibly important to be sensitive. Remember, there are plenty of household remedies that we've only recently discovered the scientific basis of. It's always possible that science is behind. That being said, providers can work with patients to focus on high-yield interventions for weight loss and strategies that work for most people, mainly being diet and exercise.
One way is to use the principles for motivational interviewing and behavior change. Patients must be open to changing their beliefs in order to take up new weight loss management techniques. One way to do this, respectfully and objectively, is to ask the patient questions about what he or she thinks the results of his or her efforts are. This is why the provider asks Mrs. Martinez if she's lost weight on the vinegar or if her family has noticed any changes. Being open and non-judgmental will help your patients feel like you're on their side. Part 4. Behavior Change Would it be okay if I offered some options for changes we could make now? Sure. Uh, the first thing I recommend to all my patients is to switch from regular soda to diet soda. I know it can be hard to give soda all at once um, because you're used to the taste, but switching from regular to diet can prevent you from gaining one pound a month. Isn't that incredible? Uh, yeah, that is amazing, but I don't know. We're so used to soda. Okay. Well, so for my patients who are used to soda, I recommend cutting down one can a week. Um, so maybe having a diet soda instead of the regular one at lunch this week. Um, I'll think about it. Do you have other suggestions that I could try? I've noticed positive changes in my patients who have switched from cooking with lard to cooking with a healthy oil like olive or sunflower or something. I mean, do you think that would be a reasonable change to make? Well, I don't know. I think it depends on what my mom says. She's the one who cooks, so... Uh, uh, well, who usually does the grocery shopping? I do. Um... I guess, I just don't think my mom would want to change her cooking that much. What if you told her that your cholesterol panel would improve if she used some of these other products? I don't know. I, I guess I don't want to tell her so she doesn't worry, you know? Okay. And what if you told her it would be better for the kids if she used the other products? Oh, man. I, I don't think that's a good idea. I think she would freak if I told her that she couldn't feed them the way she wants, like... For her, I think food is love, and if you don't eat it, she thinks you're not accepting her love. Yeah. My grandmother is the same way. Uh, so one thing I do that seems to work is I say, Grandma, I want to eat what you've made, but can I get more salad? I really like it. You see that instead of saying no to certain foods, you can ask for more of the healthy stuff so she doesn't think that you're rejecting her food. Okay. Yeah, that should work. I'll try that. Great. So the second thing is I noticed um, is that there weren't too many fruits in your diet. Uh, are there any fruits that you like? I don't know. I guess it's just not a habit that my family has. Uh, the reason I bring up fruits is, is that, one, they are small and easy to eat as snacks, and two, they have lots of good vitamins and fiber. I think that if we were to replace your afternoon snacks with some fruit, that could help. Okay. What fruit would you like to start with? Uh, which ones do you like? Well, I don't know. Uh, can I suggest something? Yeah. When starting it out, it might be nice to buy a small fruit salad that can last you two to three days. And then once you buy it, you can sprinkle some chili pepper or lemon on it before you eat. Um, some people really like that spicy taste. What do you think of that? Okay, so I would take the fruit salad to work and do that there? Oh, I just meant that when you're packing your lunch for the day, you could pack a couple scoops of fruit salad and then add chili to it then, just so you can experiment with what spices you like without changing the whole batch. Okay, I'll think about it. 
Okay. And the last thing I wanted to talk about is physical exercise. Doc, I just don't have time for anything like that. I leave for work so early and I come home so late. I'm sorry your work days are so long. I know it's hard. But even if you can't go to a gym or something, there are plenty of small changes that you can make in the home. Like what? Well, you could always move the TVs out of everyone's bedrooms. Um, there is good research showing that people tend to eat mindlessly while watching TV or other screens. Also, having a TV in the bedroom can affect your sleep. So moving the TVs out of the bedroom would probably help you and the kids sleep better and would help with stopping mindless eating. Okay, but I don't know. The kids have gotten pretty used to it. Yeah, it's a hard habit to break. But the pediatricians are especially sure that having a TV in the kids' bedroom is pretty bad for their sleep. Okay, I will think about it. Pearl 4, Behavior Change In this part of the encounter, the provider discusses potential behavior changes with Mrs. Martinez. The provider first addresses the metaphorical low-hanging fruit, or soda. As we mentioned earlier, Mexican Coke contains 39 grams of sugar in each bottle, and it's incredibly popular. Getting patients to cut out Mexican Coke, even if it's just a couple bottles a week, can make a difference. But, in true motivational interviewing technique, the provider looks for behavior changes that the patient is ready to make. The behavior change that the patient is interested in is the one that will be effective. So then the provider asks who cooks and buys groceries to explore opportunities for intervention in Mrs. Martinez's combined family. It's important for the provider to understand these dynamics. Understanding the beliefs of the grocery buyer and cook can also be helpful. One study analyzed the discussions of Latina women in a culturally adapted weight loss program. These women reacted more favorably to the idea of eating more healthy food instead of eating less unhealthy food. While some may think this is just a matter of semantics, it can point to a deeper cultural belief. Specifically with children, caregivers are hesitant to restrict food, but more open to increasing the healthy food ratio. The provider introduced another potential change, removing television sets from bedrooms. One meta-analysis studied the effect of household environments on Latino children. This meta-analysis found the rate of TVs in bedrooms of Latino children was 74% compared to the rate of TVs in bedrooms of white children, around 22%. The American Academy of Pediatrics put out a policy statement in 2016 outlining the risks of media use in school-aged children and teenagers. Notably, a TV in the bedroom has been linked to higher obesity rates, poorer sleep quality, and poorer school performance. So, why do parents let kids have TVs in their bedrooms? Well, Parents can be unaware of the health risks of having a TV in the child's bedroom. Moreover, there are some positive aspects that Latino parents associate with their kids watching TV. One such aspect is acculturation in language learning. Watching American TV can help Latino children learn English. Another prevalent belief is that the TV can help put the child to sleep at night. However, the blue light from the screens is known to interfere with the release of melatonin or the chemical that the brain creates to regulate sleep and wake cycles. As a provider, it's important to talk about screen time, and particularly about having a TV in the bedroom with parents and children. So those were some of the changes that the provider proposed to Mrs. Martinez, but we want to take a moment to talk about the other potential changes as well. 
If the provider feels comfortable enough, he or she can discuss healthy traditional foods that the patient could eat. For example, a breakfast of traditional huevos con chaya could be healthier than American cereals. Starting lunch with sopa aguada, a low, energy-dense soup rather than fast foods, can decrease caloric intake. When making rice and beans, increasing the bean-to-rice ratio can decrease a patient's risk of developing metabolic syndrome. All of these behavior changes are options for discussion based on patient preference and provider comfort. Part 5. Conclusion Okay, Mrs. Martinez, uh, so we went over a lot. Can you tell me what changes you are going to make, just so we're thinking the same thing? Well, um, one thing was what to do at family gatherings, put the water and other bowls in the plate so I don't eat as much and so people don't ask too many questions. Great. And um, we talked about low-fat dairy. Yeah, uh, cooking with low-fat dairy and with healthy oil instead of lard. Okay, so that's one thing we will do. Okay, great. Anything else? I forgot. We also talked about the spicy fruit salad and moving the TVs out of the bedrooms. Yeah, I can do the fruit salad, but I just don't think my kids would be okay with moving the TVs out the bedroom. Uh, great. I think eating more fruit instead of your afternoon snack would be great. Uh, maybe moving the TVs could be our next step, but we should revisit that next time. Next time? Ideally. I would like to see you back to talk about how these changes are going and what else we could do. Um, things we should talk about next time include soda consumption, salt intake, and more physical exercise. Okay. It's just that it was pretty hard to get time off for this appointment today. Okay. Um, let me check something on the computer. Well, it looks like your daughter has a physical appointment in two months. Uh, would you like to make an appointment along with her so we can check in about this? Sure, I can do that. Okay, great. So, Mrs. Martinez, any other questions for me? No, I think that's it, doctor. Okay, <laughs> great. I, I think once you feel comfortable with some of these smaller changes, we can make some bigger changes with food and physical activity. If we're careful about this, then I don't think we'll have to worry about diabetes in the future. Okay, sounds good. Thanks, Doc. Thanks, Mrs. Martinez. See you in two months. Pearl 5, Conclusion In this part of the encounter, the provider reviews the changes that Mrs. Martinez plans to make and gets buy-in for a follow-up appointment. Mrs. Martinez plans to, one, arrange her plate to limit her intake during family gatherings, two, cook with low-fat dairy and healthier oils, and three, increase fruit consumption by eating fruit salads. When setting up a follow-up appointment, you can garner goodwill with your patient by grouping upcoming appointments, setting a clear agenda for the upcoming appointment, such as discussing an exercise plan, can also help get Mrs. Martinez's buy-in. Well, I hope that felt realistic and was helpful for you. Let's recap some of the key points from this podcast. 1. Chronic disease and risk factors. Remember that Latinos do not have a uniform risk for developing chronic diseases. That being said, on average, Latinos have a higher rate of obesity than whites, about the same rates of hypertension, and much, much higher rates of diabetes. 2. Unfamiliar foods. When asking about foods that you're unfamiliar with, ask questions to help you understand the nutrient profile, assess the flavor profile, ask about the ingredients and preparation method, and finally, remember to ask about portion size. 3. 
meal traditions, and food beliefs. When addressing your patient's food beliefs, be sensitive. It's possible that science has yet to discover the basis of household remedies. Assess your patient's readiness to change their beliefs. 4. Behavior change. There are a variety of options that you can offer to your patients for improving their diet and decreasing sedentary behavior. Remember to talk about soda and screen time. And 5. Conclusion. Make sure you're on the same page as the patient by reviewing the changes he or she plans to make, and remember to get buy-in for a follow-up appointment. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. This podcast was made possible by the support of the Area Health Education Centers of California, the California Public Health Training Centers, the Western Region Public Health Training Centers, and the Medical Scholars Fellowship by Stanford University School of Medicine. Thanks to Dr. Michelle Hauser for her feedback. Special thanks to Virginia Fowkes for her support and advice. Thanks to James Seifert and Danielle Steiger for their superb acting. Mm-hmm. <laughs>